All right, greetings once again from Fremont E Free. We are back here the Monday after Thanksgiving. Hopefully everyone had a good holiday. We are reflecting today on, as Jim pointed out yesterday, 71 verses. Uh, so a lot to cover. Uh, we're going to walk through each verse verse by verse today. <laughs> just, just kidding. Uh, we're actually going to do our best to try to summarize this as quickly as we can. Um, 71 verses and uh, 30 minutes or so. That's the goal here. So, uh, Jim, I'll, I'll start with you. You've had the most time to reflect on this actually several weeks since you um, were preparing ahead of time. So I'm just curious, like, what was it that God was doing in your heart? And not talking about just the factual information here, but what was God doing in your heart as you were preparing for this sermon? I, I've said this before, and I'll say it again, that the person who always benefits most from a sermon is the person who prepares it, assuming they're doing it in a prayerful way and trying to let the Word of God in, you know, seep into their heart. So all that right. to say, I think you're the one who probably benefited the, from this the most. So what, what is it that God did in your heart through the preparation for this particular sermon? Yeah, you know, when you look at Stephen, I mean, so much of it is his message, but when you get the little glimpses of, of his life, you know, there's some things that really stand out about him. You know, this was a guy who the Spirit was just working mightily in him. It's mentioned, you know, it's mentioned in chapter 6, in verse 10, the Spirit with which he was speaking, you know, that you have it again. Um, in chapter 7 where it said, but he full of the Holy Spirit. I mean, you just see that the Spirit was just oozing out of him and all that he was doing. And I always read Stephen and thought, man, how could this guy do this? Like, I am so not like Stephen Hmm. in this way. And like, how could he do this? And you read and you realize that, well, it was the Spirit doing these things in him. Uh, and so that, you know, that causes me just to really ponder and think, wow, do I give, uh, I do not give enough attention to the spirit to work in my life. Even things that I'm afraid to have the spirit work in my life, that if the spirit does truly work those things in my life, then I'm probably not going to be afraid because the spirit is working those things. Right. And so just, I think I was just really struck by just. Uh, Stephen and just his, you know, the, the godliness that was in him uh, to be able to just do what he did. Yeah, no, that's good what you just said. I think the things that we're most afraid of, we just have to trust that the Spirit will give us the the courage in the moment to be able to deal with that, right? And I think in this case, it's maybe persecution or death, and yet it's obvious that the Spirit strengthens Stephen um, to be able to persevere during that. And, you know, even as we're talking, I'm just thinking about stuff that's going on in our family, and our son's really sick and not doing well, and you know, I'm just, I'm convicted that I, I'm finding myself very anxious today and and kind of worried about what the future looks like, and just realizing that, I, you know, I have to trust that the Spirit will give us the power in the moment to to deal with whatever that is. I can't be thinking, well, how am I going to deal with this? Like that, I just think that's unhelpful. I have to, I have to allow myself to trust that the spirit will guide us in that moment, even if things go in the worst direction. And this, I mean, it's hard to imagine a scenario that ends worse than it does for Stephen, right? He, he's dead. Um, and yet I, I think you'd have a hard time reading this and coming to the conclusion that well, Stephen did the wrong thing. He, he obviously did the right thing. The Spirit guided him and gave him strength, and he doesn't seem afraid. Um, right. So I think I think there's application for this in a lot of areas of life. The thing that you fear the most, 
You just have to realize in that moment, the spirit will give you power. And I think for a lot of us, if we're honest, death is one of the things that we fear the most. And Stephen, in this moment faced with death, seems to be completely unafraid um, because the spirit gives him power to be unafraid. And so, you know, I think just allowing ourselves to realize that God will give us the strength we need in the moment. He doesn't give us the strength that we need ahead of time. He gives us the strength that we need in the moment and to rest in that. Right. So I think that's good. I think... Um, for me, as I was thinking about this passage, I, I was struck by um, the similarity between Acts 2.37 and then Acts 7.54. So in Acts 2.37, Peter gives the sermon at Pentecost and and says, Now when they heard this, this is, the, this is Luke um, narrating here. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? That same language appeal, appears again in Acts 7 verse 54. Uh, now when they heard these things, all right, that's almost word for word. Uh, now when they heard this, here it says, now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him and then they end up killing him, right? And so I guess, I guess what I'm driving at, and this is what I was thinking about yesterday, and you mentioned this towards the end of your sermon, we can't judge the rightness of an action based on the result, at least from an earthly standpoint, right? Right, right. Um, I don't. I, there's really no way you could argue with any sort of sincerity that, P, that Stephen was in the wrong here, right? Um, because clearly, throughout the passage, it's being pointed out that God's hand was on him; his face shone like an angel. Right. Um, right before he dies, he sees the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Right. Um, so I, I think Luke's going out of his way here to help us see. Okay, Stephen's not wrong in what he did. He mm-hmm. wasn't. You know, he wasn't speaking out of turn to say, you stiff-necked people. This is exactly what the Spirit was leading him to do, and yet it ends in his death. And so, um, you know, I talk about this with my kids a lot, that the rightness of an action can't be determined by the result of the action. Mm -hmm. So, meaning, like, maybe God, like, I'll give an example that we talk about with our kids. Maybe God is leading you in your class to stand up for your faith. And maybe that means that you get a worse grade. Um, but that doesn't mean that that was the wrong action. Right. Um, what's right before the Lord is what's right before the Lord, independent of what happens here, right? Like, um, So, you know, for, for us as adults, there's all kinds of implications for that too, right? So, um, you know, speaking here at the church, like there may be things that we preach on that some people don't like uh, if we're just preaching through the Bible verse by verse. Or there may be decisions that we make because we feel we have to be faithful to what the Bible teaches. And that may make some people upset, and maybe some would leave the church, right? Like, by the way, I'm not like trying to foreshadow anything. I hope that doesn't happen, but it could happen, right? And um, I, I think the point is that doesn't determine what's right, right? What determines right. what's right is what the Lord wants us to do. And, and you could say the same for business decisions. Maybe you make a business decision that hurts your business, but it's honoring to Christ. And just because you lose money doesn't mean it was the wrong decision. right? Um, or, you know, we could give a million examples like that, Jim. My, my whole point is... We cannot determine the rightness of an action based on the way it ends. We have to look to God's Word, and we have to be led by the Spirit. And if we're walking in step with the Spirit, and we're walking in accordance with the Word, then we can live with the results. Because in the long run, the result is that it's honoring to Christ. And, and Stephen obviously enters into the presence of God, and he is, he's rightly, he, he's one of the martyrs that we talk about in Revelation, I, I would have to assume. So I guess that's the thing I've been thinking about a lot um, since yesterday, is just we, we have to do what's honoring to the Lord and let the results fall where they, where they may. Sometimes it'll be like Acts 2, where people respond and they'll be like, that was the right decision. Like, tell us how we can be saved. And sometimes people will be angry. But right. either way, 
just do what's right and don't worry about the result of it. So I think that's the thing I've been thinking about most from this passage. Right. Yeah. And the reason, the reason I brought that out is because I can struggle with that. Like I've thought about seasons in my life where I felt like, you know, I did everything right in that situation and it turned out badly. Right. And, and sometimes we can have this mindset of like, well, because I do everything right, that I'm owed a positive result. But there's a little bit of the health and wealth gospel in that, isn't there? Yeah. Unfortunately, there is. Right. Or at least a merit system, right? That says, if I do good, I get good in return. Right. The roots of it are the same, right? Right. Yeah. Right. Right. And, and so, and, and I get, and I was like, and I would ask God, I say, God, why did, why was this the result of these actions? Cause I felt like those actions were all the right thing to do. And to realize that, that, that does penetrate into my heart in that mindset and to just see, you know, something like in this passage with Stephen so clearly, like he did do absolutely everything right. Right. And it did not go his way. That does not mean that it was wrong. Right. Um, and so, and so I just think that's a good reminder to say, you know what? No, uh, God knows what he's doing. Even the persecution of the church itself. Right. Right. You're, you're talking about like the spreading of the gospel right. from which that spread the gospel sure. from that, which continued the plan of God that God sometimes uses persecution in order to fulfill his plans for his church and for his people. Right. Yeah. It, just a side note here. I, I, I would really be curious to hear someone who holds to the health and wealth gospel try to explain what happens to Stephen here. I mean, if if you're arguing that you should be a Christian because your best life will be now, then right. what do you do with Stephen, right? He's dead because right. he was faithful to Christ. It, I, I mean, one of the reasons why the health and wealth gospel, and this idea that if you just obey God, everything will go well in your life bothers me, besides the fact that it's just not biblical is that it leads to people becoming disenchanted. Um, right. And in this case, like Stephen, again, I think Luke is going out of his way to help us see, no, this is the spirit leading Stephen. His face is like that of an angel. He's, he's seeing the son of man at the right hand. Like all these things would point to like, he's doing the right thing and yet he ends up dead. Right. And so, yeah, I think again, I would just encourage you if you, if you are trying to be faithful to what the word teaches and you're trying to walk by the spirit, don't let your results determine whether it was the right action. Now, obviously there's always room to ask the question, okay, was I walking by the spirit and was I doing what the word teaches? That that's a fair question to ask. Um, but I think, I think there are subtle elements of the health and wealth gospel that seek into our own way of thinking, thinking, well, I did everything right. And yet it turned out wrong. Why? Right. And sometimes the answer is God just has purposes we don't see. And in this case, we can kind of see what was going on with Stephen, that God was going to use this to advance the spread of the gospel to all these different places. Uh, but sometimes God never lets us behind the curtain. We never know what he was doing, right. but we still have to be committed to doing the right thing regardless of how it ends. Right. So, yeah, I think that's the biggest thing I was thinking in this particular passage. So I want to I want to try to put you on the spot here a little bit. All um, right, let's do it. Uh, so... Stephen's sermon. All right. First of all, you know, I know we, we joked yesterday it was a really long sermon, but let's be honest, it was six minutes, right? Like we preach we preach much longer than six minutes on Sunday morning. I don't doubt that Stephen actually spoke for much longer than that, right? Right. It's just long because we're not using we're not used to seeing that long of a sermon compiled in scripture. Sure. And certainly the book of Acts is longer than anything else. But it is relatively speaking, a short sermon that we if we have to be honest, in the course of church history, it's a short sermon. But in the course of the Bible, it's a long sermon. So here's where I want to put you on the spot. 
uh, in a sentence or two, I, I'd love to hear you to sum up. What is Stephen's point here? What, what, what is the point that he's trying to make in going through this kind of long and convoluted journey through the scripture? I think, I think you summarized sections of it yesterday. Um, so I have a feeling I know where you're going to go with this, but like, what, what right. would you say in a sentence or two? This is the point he's trying to make in going on this long dialogue through the Old Testament. Right. You know, I think one thing that was really helpful because I've, you know, I've read, Acts several times. I've read this uh, sermon several times. I've always wondered, man, why did why did he say the things that he said there? And I think I think the real, at least the key for me to really start to understand why Stephen said what he said in seven was because of what's going on in verse six, right? I mean, in verse uh, in verse thirteen is is the accusation against him that the false witnesses bring this man never ceases to speak words against his holy place and the law right that's the accusation and for me that was a pretty key piece to see that's that. the interpretive key there verse 13 yeah i think that's an interpretive mm. key because now you're going to start so now when you take that into account to go okay so this is like so in a sense he's on trial right i guess i really didn't say that yesterday but it He's really on trial at this particular point in time, and this is the charge that has been brought against him in his trial. And what Stephen does now is getting ready to give his defense against what his, um, you know, what his what he's being accused of. Right. Speaking against the temple and speaking against the law. And what I think what Stephen is wanting to do is is to tell the people, um, you know, I understand the law and the temple really well. Like, I think I understand the law in the temple better than you. Right. I'm going to show you how, and I'm going to unpack it in the lives of these people. But in the sense that, and then I think what he's saying is saying, you know, you think I'm rejecting the law and the temple. Right. But the reality is, is you are the ones who have, have your whole history have had a pattern of rejecting God, his law, his idea of what the law was really meant for right. and what the temple was really all about. That these things, like they saw the temple and the law as the means of salvation. Right. And Stephen is saying, no, the temple and the law is to point us to our need of salvation right. that is found in ultimately, of course, in Jesus, and that they totally missed the whole point of what temple and law are all about. Right. And so I th- that's more than a sentence, obviously, maybe a nice run-on sentence. But I think that's how you could summarize what Stephen is wanting to do, because I think he kind of brings that out basically uh, in his own, I think 51 to 53 is his summary statement. Right. Saying you've always resisted the Holy Spirit. So I think what they, what, and that's a key thing, right? You've mm. always resisted the Holy Spirit. Well, hold it's kind of throwing Holy, down the gauntlet, right? The you Holy, always resist the Holy right. Spirit. Right. And the Holy Spirit just came in Acts 2. Right. But he's resist, they have resisted the work of the Holy Spirit in what was going on leading up to the coming of Christ. Right. Um, which, just side note here, I mean, Acts 2 and the Holy Spirit descends, like, that's not the first time the Holy Spirit shows up on the scene. It's not like there's a new character here, right? right. Like the Spirit's been around forever, just right. like the Father and the Son. Right. Yeah. I mean, I even think, I, I, I didn't bring this up, I even think there's a pointer to Jesus in verse 37 that I think Stephen is wanting to make, um, where it says, this Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet who is like me from your brothers. Mm-hmm. That prophet is is uh, is is a reference to Jesus. They've been 
looking for this prophet, that prophet is fulfilled in Christ himself. And I think there's even a, a comment there that Stephen is making and saying, look, man, you guys, even Moses said Jesus was coming. And right. he rejected that message too. Right. You know? Yeah. No, that's good. That's helpful. I think that's a good summary. Um, so as you know, most of the people who are listening to this are probably not Jewish by ethnicity and not probably practicing Jews, I would guess. Right. Unless we have an audience that I'm unaware of. Um, but I'm, I'm going to assume that, right? So what's the significance of Stephen's, Stephen's sermon for the average person who attends free money free? Wow, that's a really good question. Um, I, think there's a, I think there's a message within Stephen here that is saying, what is it that you are ultimately putting your trust in? Okay, yeah, explain on that. You know, that, that I think what he's showing these his crowd is that, look, you're trusting in the wrong thing. Right. To save you. You're trusting in temple. You're trusting in, in which I would say, is sacrifice. Sure. You're trusting in law. This is what you're trusting in to save you. What you're really trying to do is to save yourself. Right. Um, so I think that there's a message there of saying, what are you going to trust in? And I think there's another message that is saying, um, quit resisting Jesus. Yeah. I mean, I think this, I mean, I'd like to get your thoughts on this. I think this is in a lot of ways, a very evangelistic message, hmm. right? Like to say, don't reject Jesus. You have been rejecting so many things forever. Quit rejecting. And I think that our society has rejected Jesus quite a bit. Right. And I think that there is a message to our culture today that says, hey, quit rejecting Jesus. Quit rejecting the one who uh, is to be Lord of your life. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's good. I think um, the idea that we would not put our trust in religion or in works, I mean, that's, that's essentially what we're getting at with the temple right. and the law, right? Like there's a religious element, there's a works element, and um, there can be some parallels there to how people in Fremont, Nebraska are trying right. to be right with God by being religious or right. by doing good works, don't, right? Don't, don't trust in your baptism to save you. Sure, yeah. Or right. sacraments, right? Right, because at the end of the day, it's Christ. It's not these religious acts that save right. you. Um, right. So, yeah, I think there's some parallels there. I think there's also there's also something helpful about realizing um, the Old Testament and New Testament are not disconnected. I mean, absolutely. We, we talk about that regularly, so I'm not like turning over new soil here. This is something we talk about regularly. But the Old Testament and New Testament are one book. Um, it's not like Jesus is coming on the scene and now we have a new religion. It's the fulfillment of what we see in the Old Testament, right? That Christ right. is fulfilling all the Old Testament prophecies right. and promises. Um, all their promises find their yes and their amen in Christ. And so the Old Testament is helpful in that it points us to Christ. Um, right. It's certainly like to just focus on the Old Testament's exclusion of the New Testament would be to miss the point of the Old Testament. Now, on the other hand, if you just say, well, I'm just a New Testament person, I don't really like the Old Testament, well, you're, you're kind of missing out on all the background that sets it up, right? Like the, the New Testament presumes that we understand the Old Testament. So Stephen is clearly pointing out here that there is a connection, that there is a continuity. And I think that's the key. Like we need to understand there's a continuity between the Old and New Testament. And one of the reasons why we preach through both Old and New Testament books is because we see that continuity and right. that the Old Testament is pointing ahead to Christ, whereas the New Testament is looking back on what Christ did. Right. Um, so I think the continuity also is something I would say from Stephen's message that don't miss that there's a connection between the Old and New Testament. Right. Right. And I even think in bringing out Abraham and Moses, those were the, you know, those were the two 
mighty men in the eyes of the Jewish people at that time. And, and I think that Stephen is saying, look, you know, these guys are not your saviors. You know, they are, you know, they are, you know, even in, in, uh, in talking to Abraham where it talks about, uh, but promise to give it to him as a possession and his offspring after him. The offspring is Jesus, right? The right. offspring is ultimately always pointing to Jesus. The prophet is pointing to Jesus. I think there are things that are in here that Stephen is doing is saying, you know, Abraham is is a pointer to Christ. Joseph is a type of Christ because he's a deliverer. Right. Moses is a type of Christ because he's a deliverer. You know, that these are all pointing forward to Jesus as well. Yeah, that's good. I'm just a side note here. Joseph does seem like a bit of an outlier. That's not who you expect to be in the list, right? Because he's right. So I, I'm curious, like, why why Joseph in particular? You think because they're usually we talk about the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, or right. you know, like you know Moses is thrown in there a lot too. But Joseph seems a little bit like why why particularly him? I know you touched on that a little bit right. yesterday, but why particularly Joseph? Do you think? Right, right. I, you know, I do think that when it talked about, you know, right off the bat where it says the patriarchs jealous of Joseph sold him into slavery, like there's that, I think that's that first hint of rejection right. there that you start to see. Because I thought it was interesting that Abraham, there wasn't necessarily a rejection part with Abraham. Right. I was actually thinking about that yesterday when you're preaching, because when you ba- went back and talked about the rejection theme, right. you started Joseph. I'm like, well, what, wasn't there someone before Joseph? It was Abraham, but his rejection isn't really mentioned, right? So Joseph is where that theme starts to come in in this sermon. Right, right. So it's interesting uh, that I was kind of wondering, like, okay, so it's not like that theme isn't consistently through, right. but I think it does start with Joseph, this idea of a rejected deliverer. Um, which ultimately I think is also Christ, right? Christ is the rejected deliverer that these people have continued to reject, right. um, even though he has come to deliver. Uh, and, and so I, and I do think there's that idea of, you know, it's almost like, like to talk about where God kept appearing to all of these guys, right? Yeah. Mesopotamia, Egypt, the wilderness, like it felt like every place that like if he's really wanting to downplay the significance of the temple and showing where else does God show up, it seems like he geographically maybe kept going further and further away. Hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like Mesopotamia, now we're down to Egypt, now we're even out of Egypt and into the wilderness. Like how far away can we get from the promised land here Right. uh, that to say, look, God in his glory is, is everywhere. Yeah. You know, no, that's good. All right, so one one last thing I want to ask you about here, <clears throat> and there I'll give you an initial question, and then there's a potential super deep in the weeds question oh, that boy. I've been asked about since yesterday. But the thing I heard probably most people talking about after the sermon yesterday, and the thing I probably thought most about was this idea of verse 56 in chapter 7, where Stephen says, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Right. Um, so a lot of people are saying, I've never noticed that he wasn't sitting as compared to, I think you said it's from Daniel 7, right? Where he's sitting? Is right, that- in Daniel 7, and then in, in that's how Jesus says it as well at his trial. Oh, yeah, right. Okay. Like in Mark 14 okay. as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so right. expand a little bit more on like why you think that's significant for us that he's standing. And then I do have potentially super deep in the question. But go ahead, expand on that first and tell us why you think that's significant for us. Right, right. Not just for Stephen, in other words. Right, you know. Just so, just some of the some of the commentaries that I read. You know, there is a lot of speculation. Just to be, you know, completely transparent about right. that, and just you know, reading guys that are smarter than me. And so, the, 
so there there was but there was this kind of reoccurring theme that kind of sound like you know when when you when you stand for someone it means you are you are with them hmm. that you are 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 approving of them right that you are for them that you are saying i am acknowledging you in this moment right and that there's this idea here that when 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 Stephen looks up, and it's interesting because Jesus quotes Jesus directly quotes uh, Daniel chapter seven right. at his trial, but Stephen isn't necessarily quoting something. He's looking, he's having a vision, and he's seeing something. So he's beholding something that he sees, and he's basically describing what he sees. Hmm. And so I do think that there is this thing in this moment. Where where Stephen is seen, where where uh, and I think maybe this comes back to to connect this idea that says you know what you may be doing everything right and it doesn't go well for you, but it's still the right thing to do. That Jesus is saying you did the right thing, Stephen. Yeah. Everybody is 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 against you, uh, and everyone is coming after you. Right. But I am I'm going to stand for you. Yeah. You know to say I approve of you and what you have done to, to say, Hey, I know you did everything right. And here's your reward. Right. Uh, I am standing with you. I'm standing for you. I approve of you. I'm your advocate. I'm for you. Right. Yeah, it's good. I mean, there's gotta be something significant about him standing at the right hand. I, I think that's as good a theory as any that right. I've heard. And I haven't, I don't know that I really thought about that till yesterday. And that makes sense. Um, but I think at the very least we have to say there is a significance there because you're right, right in Mark fourteen sixty two, he talks about that the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Um, yeah, that, so it's interesting that now he's standing, which makes right. you think that there is something significant going on there. Right. All right. So here's here's the deep in the weeds question that my kids would ask or that other people have asked. Um, my Connected I've even thought about this? myself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So. I, I will just sit back and let you answer this, because this is a difficult question, I think. So in verse 56, he said, Behold, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So if if God is one, um, how is how is that possible, right? Like, I'm, I'm thinking of the Trinity here. Um, how can the Son of Man be standing at the right hand of God if the Son of Man is God? So how does that work? Um, mm. This is a discussion mm. we had in our family last night, mm. and... Uh, I think it's a really interesting question, and I will happily defer to what you think. How would you explain that? Well, even in now that you say that, I didn't even really think about this. In 55, you have the whole Trinity in one verse, right? Right. Yep. Verse He's 55. full of the Holy Spirit. Yep. He's gazing into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And then he describes what he saw there. Well, I think what this does is this really preaches against an idea of modalism, right? Modalism is a big, fancy theological word right. that basically means that God changes modes. There's this idea that the, that to, like, to try to explain the Trinity in such a way that says, uh, like... That he's like water, that he turns from ice to steam to liquid, right? Like right. that's modalism. Like right. the idea right. that he just changes modes. Right. Like right? he changes costumes like right. part into Superman. Right. Like he said, okay, now I'm gonna put on my God shirt. Now I'm gonna put on my Jesus clothes. Now I'm gonna put on my Holy Spirit clothes. And he right. moves back and forth all the time. And I like verses like this because that preaches against this idea of modalism. Because you've got two 
things separately happening at the same time. Right. So one, I think what this does is dispute an idea like that. Because sure. I think that goes, I think modalism, I don't believe is very biblical because it goes against the well, idea. It's not biblical, right? Yeah. Right. That says that Jesus is three, uh, three in essence in, or three, how's it? Three in person, one in essence. Right. That so, three in one uh, uh, paradox you right. can say there, right? Um, and so. I definitely think it speaks to his triune nature. So the question right. is, how does it speak to his oneness? Like if he is. Right. At the right hand of God, how that, that's the question I right. think you know we are getting at with my family. Like, how is right. that possible? Right, I don't know. I think this is one of those things. I hate saying that because I know it sounds like a cop out answer, but I think this is one of those verses that I look at and say, I don't understand how this works, right? But because the scripture says it, it has to be true, so it has to work, right? You know, God is spirit, mm-hmm. Jesus is. God incarnate. Yeah. For, I mean, first of all, like you, okay. So I, I, I would say my first answer to this question is it's a, it's a glorious mystery. Like how does this work itself out? I have no idea. Um, I think the beauty of the Trinity is that it means that God is, God is just different than us. Um, right. Who is like our God? The answer to that question is no one, right? right. There, there, there's no one that can relate to him and say, oh, I get that, right? And, and any illustration you use for the Trinity is going to be incomplete, whether Correct. it's a three-leaf three leaf clover or whether it's an egg or whether it's water. Right. Like All of those illustrations right. we could point out are one form of a heresy or another because there is no one like God who right. is one in essence and three in persons. Like That is, that is really... Like it's mind blowing, right? Like God is just more than us. Like right. we we can point to a group of three and we can say, oh, we're one, right? Like, but we can't say that we're both three and one at the same time. Like right. God is just different than us, right? Um, I think, and He needs to be different than us in order to be God, right? Like, how discouraging would it be if He was like us, right? I would I would not want to worship that God. Right. I'm so thankful He's right. not like if, me. If He was a God that we were able to figure right. out perfectly understand, perfectly wrap our heads around and say, okay, I get God now. Right. Um, he, that's a pretty small God and in, in, uh, not, uh, it's, he's not a, a sufficient right. God. So I, I think one of the reasons why passages like this are particularly troublesome for us is because we, we tend to think, um, like the traditional definition I've heard of God, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable, and is being wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. God is a spirit, right? Right. So in other words, God the Father doesn't have a body. He's a spirit. Right. Um, and I think we think he does have a body, in part because we've seen the Sistine Chapel and we picture him as this old grandfather with a beard. Like, And so when we see the right hand of, of God, we assume, okay, there's God the Father with his gray beard, and there's, then there's the son next to him. But... I, I think that's where, you know, that's why the Bible tells us not to make images of God, because then we start to get false pictures of what he's like. Can we limit him? Right. I, I think this this illustration is less about spatial issues, meaning like, here's God, the Father, and to the right of him is Jesus, right. and more about power. Like, being at the right hand of God means that that's the position of power, right? So right. I think what we're saying is right. he has all of the power. I don't think he's, we're saying he's standing next to the Father, right? Um, because, I, I, again, that would speak against his unity, that there's one God in three right. persons. So, you know, what what it means, I, I mean, again, we just have to affirm, this is a glorious mystery. I'm, I'm not right. entirely for sure, but I think part of the problem is that we just tend to think, like, 
in such physical terms that God the Father must have a body, when in reality, I don't think that's the case. He's a spirit, right? right. So I think this is speaking more to his power than it is to um, his uh, a spatial issue, right? Right. So, I mean, all that to say, though, like... Like it's it's scary to talk about the Trinity, even for me, because I feel like every last word we could parse and be like, "Well, don't know if you said that correctly." And I'm right. I'm willing to admit, like, diving into the mystery of the Trinity is really hard um, to to even sort through the language. Like, I try to be really particular because I don't want to say something that's false. But anytime you talk about something you can't right. understand, it's easy to slip into language that you are speaking falsely. So, right. I think what we have to affirm is that there is one God and three persons. Right. How that's true, I'm not entirely for right. sure, but I believe that it is true, and it's a glorious mystery to embrace that there is no one like our God, and that He's just different than us. Right. And praise God that that's the case. Right. So, right. yeah, because right. we could sit here and say, "Is our God one? Yes. Is our God in three persons? Yes. Right. And you have to answer yes to both of those questions to fully biblically grasp the concept of the Trinity. Right. And to answer no to one of those questions is where you run into trouble. Yeah, you're, you're entering into the territory of heresy at that point, right? right. So, right. I mean, and you could point out all kinds right. of examples throughout history where people have either denied God's oneness or they've denied his, his triune nature, and both are equally wrong. Right. And, you know, again, I just, <laughs> I just want to say, like, even as we're talking about it, like, it's so hard to talk about because it's just beyond the scope of our comprehension. And, and I hope that we're, we're trying to be as faithful as we can to address this as faithfully as we can. You know, right. years from now, we may be able to look back and say, well, we could, probably could have said that a little bit clearer. But that's, that's it. I mean, there's the deep end and then there's the deep end. And right. the Trinity is the deep, deep end. Right. But I, I think it's okay for us to swim in that and be overwhelmed by the fact that God is not like us and to embrace that and say, how this is true, I don't know. But what I do know is it's gloriously awesome. Right. 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 All right. Well, now that we've got that figured out, I guess that can be enough for today. Um, <laughs> obviously, there's there's an infinite amount that we could say about it and an infinite amount that we know nothing about. Um, and probably right. it's just good to stop before we say anything right. dumber than we already have. So uh, all that to say, anything else you got to say on Stephen, Jim? Anything else you want to pass on? Uh, you know what? I think I think that's I think that's good. OK, we're le- we're ending on kind of a cliffhanger, though. I, I almost said something yesterday about this, but we've got this big persecution of the church. Saul's ravaging the church, and now we're going to take a month off of the book of Acts. Yeah, people are just going to have to wait and see what happens. I know. Or if you really wanted to, you could read ahead, and that would be, <laughs> that would be allowed. Uh, we are going to take a month off here for Advent to prepare our hearts for the celebration of the coming of Christ. Right. Um, next week, we're going to be in Luke 1, 46 to 55. We're going to spend four weeks looking at four songs that appear in Luke chapters 1 and 2. Um, there's a song of, of Mary, and there's a song of Zechariah, there's the angel's song, and then Simeon's song. So it's interesting that there's these kind of poetry-like songs that appear Excuse me, in Luke 1 and 2. And so over the course of the next four weeks, um, we're going to be looking at those. And by the way, with, with Acts being the sequel to Luke, I think it's going to tie in well to what we're looking at Acts, that these are not going to be disconnected. So four songs over the course of the next four weeks. This week, Mary's song in Luke 1, 46 to 55. I do encourage you to prepare your heart uh, to celebrate Christmas. I know this is the time where we buy gifts and put up Christmas lights. But at the end of the day, it's about remembering who Jesus is and why right. he came and why right. there's hope. So. Uh, let me encourage you to do that. And, and one last thing I just want to bring up, maybe um, completely unimportant, but I just wanted to hear your thoughts, Jim, like now that Nebraska <laughs> season's over, if I remember correctly, at the beginning of the season, you predicted 
a record of nine and three. So I'll give you a ton of credit. You got the numbers right. That's uh, something, it right? It just got flipped. So just one last question. We don't have to make this long. <laughs> but after a three and nine season, are you still optimistic heading into next season? You have to be optimistic, right? The best three and nine team ever in the history of college football, right? How can you not be optimistic going into next season? Logan Smothers for Heisman. Oh, start man. the hype train now. Well, uh, for a guy who predicted 9-3 and three for this season, I'm not surprised you're optimistic. Good for <laughs> you, Jim. All right. That's it for this week. Have a great week. We'll catch you again next week. Mm-hmm.